many of us, we have received a position. We put in a resume and things like that. They filtered through the resumes. And somewhere along the way, you might have got called and might have got the job. Uh, but an appointment is a little different. There's a little bit different to be appointed to an office. And two things that usually come when we consider someone being appointed is that it comes from the recognition that one, it's from heredity or from lineage, how someone becomes appointed. You think about the kings. Recently in England, they just, they just appointed a new king. Well, that's because he was in line to receive that, okay? It was lineage. And then there's also uh, another way of someone being appointed is by selection, by knowledge of the individual. You know the individual, they have skills, or they have some point that they can be appointed to the position. Well, today we're talking about Jesus' appointment uh, and how his appointment is greater than any of the previous priests in any fashion uh, in the Old Testament or the New. So if you've opened up your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10 and then chapter 7, verses 1 through 25. So uh, without further ado, let's, let's start looking here at our text. In Hebrews chapter 5, we'll read verses 1 through 4. I'll read them as I get to them instead of reading the whole portion because if so, I'm going to be repeating it. So let me just read Verses 1 through 4 of Hebrews chapter 5. It says, For every high priest is taken from among men, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So as we look at this beginning part, the first point that I have for us today is an appointment. It is an appointment for men by God. It is an appointment for men by God. Uh, these Old Testament priests. The high priest's jobs were to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's what, they were, that's what their job was to do there in verse 1. We see that. And that priest is taken from among men, and that man is then appointed for men in things pertaining to God. Gifts were charitable. Gifts were charitable, and offerings were as well. That's the reason why we have tithes and offerings. Tithes are expected. Offerings are given above that. Now, a tithe is a part of your worship, but that offering really is a greater worship. It's giving of something beyond what God expects of you to do. We are all called to be tithers if we are believers in Jesus Christ. If we are a part of the family of God, tithing is not an option. It is not optional. Well, I just give when it's convenient. No, you tithe. God calls for the first fruits of every believer to be given to the Lord, which means you give it through the church so the church can use it for ministry purposes. And then you may say, I want to give an offering, which is anything above the tithe. Okay? Now, we have a different mandate than was mandated in the Old Testament. I don't want to spend too much time here because honestly, this is not really in my notes. But the, but the tithe in the Old Testament, they really gave about 90% of everything they had. And lived on 10%. Today, we give 10% and act like God's really trying to pull off a fingernail if we ask for anything else. 
So we need to be grateful that God calls us to be cheerful givers and to give of that 10%. We need to be giving. We need to be tithers and not just givers, which we are appreciative of that. Don't get me wrong. God's appreciative of that. But God wants us to be tithers. So here we see that they come in and they gave. They gave both gifts and sacrifices for sins. And the, the high priest's jobs were to offer the gifts and the sacrifice for sins for himself and for the people. Because you know what they all were? Sinners. And sinners need sacrifices. Sinners need somebody to stand in the place for them. And so the gifts were charitable and offerings. This was their worship. Where sacrifices were for forgiveness and repentance. This was for righteousness. This was so the people could be right before God. That's the reason why sacrifices were made. High priests are to be compassionate on the ignorant and straying. It says it right there in verse 2. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray. I'm not going to try to get too far away from the text today, obviously, as you can tell. So the high priests are to be compassionate on the ignorant and straying. He, too, has been afflicted by the same weaknesses of life, ignorance, and straying. Even the high priest didn't have a full comprehension of who God was, just as we today don't have a full comprehension of who God is. So on some level, some greater, some less, we are ignorant. So nonetheless, we need somebody to be in our stead, to teach us, to show us, to stand as our mediator. For us today, it's Jesus Christ. For the people of Israel then, it was the high priest. He was supposed to be the most knowledgeable of God, although yet he was still ignorant. And at times, even we know through the Old Testament, many of the Old Testament priests would make poor decisions. And they would sin also. And of course, things would, consequences would come to them. Alright, so also high priests are bound to offer sacrifices for themselves and their people. I said that just a moment ago. Because there in verse 3, it tells us, Because of this, since they are subject to weakness, Because of this weakness, he is required, as for the people, as also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. So that's the, another uh, aspect of the job of the high priest. They are bound to offer sacrifices for themselves and the people. And then you see in the first part of verse 4, And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God just as Aaron was. So we see also high priests are not to take this honor on themselves. That was a big issue that you are not to do that. It is something that is granted through lineage, as I said, or granted by God, which it was granted to God through that lineage. Okay, so it's not like they're just doing that. It was part of the, the Levitical priesthood, which comes through Aaron, the bloodline of Aaron. So high priests do not take this honor on themselves. So high priests should be vessels through which God's holiness is to be revered and honored. High priests should be vessels through which God's holiness is to be revered and honored. High priests should be the most righteous people among the peoples. That's who they are supposed to be. And high priests should not grant to themselves what only God gives. They are not to grant to themselves only what God gives. We know Saul did this. We find this in 1 Samuel 13. Saul got impatient waiting on Samuel who was on his way. Saul chose to make a burnt offering and a peace offering. Saul was not the priest. That was not Saul's job. Uh, priest's duties were to do this. So when Samuel arrived on the scene, he saw and possibly even smelt on the clothing of Saul that he had burnt this offering and gave this offering, this sacrifice. And Samuel asked me, he says, what have you done? What have you done? 
And because of Saul acting in the stead of the priest unceremoniously, it was removed, uh, it removed God's blessing on his line and his kingdom. Matter of fact, the scripture tells us, um, it says Samuel, this is Samuel's communication with Saul. He says, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have, would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Can you believe that? That line was going to come through Saul. But now your kingdom shall not even continue. The Lord has sought for himself. This sounds very familiar, doesn't it? This part right here. A man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord God commanded you. God was looking for a man after his own heart. A patient man. I mean, can you imagine David, all his brothers being looked through? Should he be the next king? Should he be the next king? Should he be the next king? And he's out there watching the sheep. Don't even know no better. And then finally they bring him in and Samuel says, this is the man. This is who God wants. He was patient. He just did what his earthly father told him until he was supposed to do what his uh, heavenly father told him to do. Now granted, David also too was not perfect. He was not perfect either. But he was a man after God's own heart. And you could be a person after God's own heart and still be one who sins from time to time. But there are things, there are some things that you just do not break. And Saul broke one of the things he was not supposed to break. He was not supposed to be the king and do the duties of the high priest. God said those things shouldn't be combined unless I say so, unless it comes from God. And we'll see uh, about how that works. We see an appropriate sacrifice given by David in 2 Samuel 24, 18 through 20. It says this, And Gad, Gad, he was a priest, came that day to David and said, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. David tells Arana, now this isn't in the scripture, but I'm just kind of paraphrasing because I've got such a long sermon today, okay? Uh, I'll be flowing in and out of scripture, given the, the scripture and given the paraphrase. David tells Arana that he is there to buy, which means he's there to appropriately conduct business. He's going to buy the land. He's going to build the altar to the Lord as is specified by the law and so that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. He's doing this not for his own self, not because he's being impatient. He's doing it for the Lord as the Lord commanded for God's people. But Arana tells David to do whatever seems good to him. Then David gives, uh, then, then Arana gives David uh, oxen and the materials for the burnt offering. It says, may the Lord your God accept you. Well, David refused the oxen without a purchase. So David bought the oxen and sacrificed his own sacrifice for himself and the people, just as a high priest was supposed to do. Just as a priest was supposed to do for himself and for the people. And God heard and relented the plague. He, brought, he ended the plague. He did as he was told to do. Now some of you, very quickly, because this may be bothering you today, you may have saw my post on Facebook. I was looking for a particular song. That song's called Break, uh, Breakdown uh, by um, Desperation Band. I just want to say that because it bugged me from the moment I started reading this this week. And I said, I've got to find that song. It's a great song. I'll let you hear it after the service because I, I favorited it in my iTunes music. That's all I'm going to say about it, and I'm going to keep going. Even though it consumed me for about the past 16 hours, that's all it's going to consume in my sermon today. All right? So... This was a God-led sacrifice, whereas Saul's was impatiently, it was an impatiently led sacrifice. 
The second thing I want us to know about this, uh, about this appointment is an appointment. This is an appointment for God by God. Look at verses 5 through 10 of Hebrews chapter 5. Verses 5 through 10. This is an appointment for God by God. Verse 5 says this of Hebrews chapter 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now hold on to that name, we're going to come back to that in a little bit. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Okay, so this is an appointment for God by God. First off, it was an appointment for man by God. This is an appointment for God by God. So clearly, in verses 5 through 6, the point is made that Jesus was appointed or glorified by the Father to be the high priest. God specifically gave Jesus Christ this command. Because it says, Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he, being God, who said to him. And you see those quotes there from those other locations in the Bible. And that comes from God. God appointed him. Then we see in verses 7 through 8, uh, we hear how Christ suffered in many of the same ways to fulfill his humanity, yet without sin. He fulfilled righteousness. You notice many of the times when Christ would do something, he said, I do this to fulfill righteousness. So that you can see what it's like to be obedient to the Father. So as we look at this, as we look at verses 7 through 10, we see how Christ modeled how to pray when in troubling situations and tempting situations. It says that he had offered up prayers and supplications. We know Christ went through much of the same trials that we go through. He is a high priest familiar with all of our temptations yet without sin. That's who he was. So he modeled how to pray when in troubling situations and tempting situations. He departed and, and put himself apart from other things so that his distractions would be removed. This morning in Sunday school, we talked a little bit about removing distractions. Because what do they become? Distractions become idols if you let them stay there too long. And that's what happened there in that text. If you're in Explore the Bible, you, we, we talked about how those distractions, if you let them stay there too long in your life, will become idols, being the phone number one. That's one of the biggest ones. But anyway, I don't want to get too far off base. But we pray, and Jesus modeled how to pray in those troubling situations and temptations. He modeled how to verbalize those prayers to God. God can take our prayers however they are delivered to Him. The Scripture says, latter part of verse 7, with vehement cries and tears to Him. Listen, God knows your heart. God knows. The Bible tells us that sometimes when we don't even have the right words to say, the Holy Spirit knows how to intercede on our behalf. Listen, He knows what's going on in your heart. He knows your prayers. He knows your communication. The thing is, He wants you to communicate with Him. 
And Christ modeled that. Christ modeled praying with a broken heart. Christ modeled how to pray when there was a, a trying situation coming up. He modeled that. And He modeled it as a human being with cries, with, with, with vehement cries and tears to Him. I'll never forget when my grandmother was in the hospital many years ago, my, my, my little mamaw, as we called her. When my little mamaw was in the hospital, and uh, we come in there, and, and basically they were just keeping her alive. Uh, I, I don't know if she was still there. I don't know if her soul was still with her at that time. I don't know. I know machines were doing a lot of the work. But we come in there, and there was another family down the hall, and they just had a, a relative pass away. And oh my goodness, I've never heard such wailing and crying in my life. They were wailing and crying. I don't know if it was someone who passed away way too early. I don't know if it was an unexpected death of a loved one that was, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s. A lot of times that's some of the most unexpected times in those age groups. And, and so, like, I don't know what was going on with that. But I just remember in that hallway hearing that wailing, those cries and those tears. You know what? God knew. God knew what was going on with them. Just as much as God knew what was going on with us in our room. Because God, through Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ modeled. He's like, look, the Father knows our heart. The God, God knows when our prayers, when we can verbalize them and when we can't. He knows it. We just got to point it to Him, which is my next point. He modeled to whom we should make these prayers. And it says, He offered prayers, tears, and cries vehemently to the Father. It says, uh, with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. There's nobody else that could have saved Christ from death than, than the Father. Right? In the garden, Jesus said, uh, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. If this cup be passed from me, may it pass from me. But if not, your will be done, not my will be done. He knew the only person who could save him from death was the Father. So when he cried, he directed it to the right person. When we pray, when we cry out, direct it to the right person. He modeled to whom we should make these prayers. He also modeled why our prayers should be to the Father. To save us from death. Now for us, it might not be praying just for physical death, it's spiritual death. God, save my soul. I'm a wretched sinner in needing of salvation. Save my soul. Redeem me. Pull me from the depths of sin, from the path of hell. Save me. And it may be that you're at the point of just physical death, but you know Christ is your Lord and Savior. And to you, you feel like, God, I've got, a, I've got more life to live. I've got more to give to you on this side of eternity. I've I got more to give. God, please give me more time. Give me more time. God knows how to hear both those prayers. And he can answer both. But he'll answer them within his will, not ours. So often we're praying, my will be done at the expense of your will, God. Not your will be done, not my will be done. And we've got to be very mindful about whose will we are truly praying to be fulfilled in our lives. But Jesus Christ modeled that. He modeled in what mindset and heart direction we should pray. You look there. It says that uh, he, he cried with the cries and the tears. He was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. His godly fear. So he modeled in what mindset and heart direction we should pray. We should be fearful of God. Not scared fearful, but just knowing his power. 
He has the power to answer that prayer. You know, he has the power to answer that prayer. So you better be mindful about what you're praying. You better make sure that that prayer you're praying ain't something that you're going to regret six months down the road or a year from now. Praying isn't flippant. You need to take your time and think about it and, and then pray to the Lord. But when you pray, pray directly to Him. Pray with Him with sincerity of heart. Pray with Him with godly fear. Pray to Him. And He modeled all His prayer through learning obedience as a man. He learned that obedience as a man. It says, uh, after that, it says, because of His godly fear, though He was a son, yet He learned obedience by the things which He suffered. He modeled all his prayer through learning obedience as a man. In verses 9 through 10, we begin this journey into Jesus' acceptance of high priest in the order of Melchizedek. In verses 9 through 10, it says, And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. It doesn't mean that he, did, he was not the author of salvation, but because now mankind can see that he has become familiar with them, they can see, we can see that he truly is, as he has the title and it proclaims to be, the author of eternal salvation. We see this. We begin this journey into his acceptance. Jesus was perfected because of his familiarity with human weakness, human reliance, and human obedience to the Father. And in becoming perfect, he then would be known as the author of eternal salvation. In being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, he revealed faithful obedience to the will of God over the will of self. And in doing so also, we now look on Jesus as our high priest who is familiar with our weakness yet without sin. We now know he is the only perfect priest who entered once for all, into the Holy of Holies, in our place, on our behalf, and offered this sacrifice for our sins, and our sins alone, in His sacrifice. Verse 10 reemphasizes this Old Testament priest and king, Melchizedek. And we'll read on into chapter 7, 1 through 25 in just a moment, to see who this person was and how it ties Christ to the line of the priesthood. We'll see that. So who is this Melchizedek? Who is this Melchizedek? Well, I want to read something to you that I have uh, typed out. This, this comes from the Bible Project. And they give you this, this order that moves us from Abraham to Jesus. The line through how this priesthood is. Because this is so foreign to anything else. Everything else, all the priesthoods had come through the line of Aaron. Right? But who is, this, who is this individual? Who is this Melchizedek that has appeared mysteriously? Well, let's, let me just read some of this to you. Uh, forgive me, because I will be doing a lot of reading instead of preaching it. But let me read this to you. In Genesis chapter 14, Abraham encounters a mysterious figure named Melchizedek. So who exactly is this fellow? As Abraham is returning victoriously from a risky battle, he passes by the city of Salem. And the king comes out to meet him. We're told that this king is also a priest who serves the same God as Abraham. We aren't told why he worships Abraham's God. He isn't even an Israelite. We aren't told his family lineage. We aren't told very much about it all about this mysterious priest king. 
When we're first introduced to this character in the book of Genesis, we're only given a very short story. And although Melchizedek is a subject of much speculation, this enigmatic historical figure and his royal priesthood serve as a model for Jesus. So let's take a closer look, okay? Melchizedek is only mentioned twice in the entire Hebrew Bible. Two times. Once in Genesis 14, 17 through 20, and then again in Psalm 110, verse 4. He rules Salem. Literally, in Hebrew, it means Shalem. Uh, it's, it's spelled Shalem. Which later in the Hebrew Bible is identified as Jerusalem. We see that in Psalm 76, 1 and 2, where it reads, God's tent is in Salem, his dwelling is in Zion. Psalm 76 uh, says that, uh, verses 1 and 2, God is known in Judah, his name is great in Israel, his tabernacle is in Salem, his dwelling place also in Zion. Melchizedek is the first explicit royal priest in the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve's roles as royal priests are implied, but Melchizedek is clearly called a royal priest. And surprisingly, we're not told that he's from the line of Seth, Noah, or Shem. What we do know is that Melchizedek is a Canaanite who somehow knows Yahweh. As a priest of God Most High, Genesis 14, 18, Hebrew, El Elyon, he serves the one whom Abraham acknowledges as the Lord God Most High, the maker of heaven and earth. For, uh, Genesis 14, 22. He is understood to be a genuine priest of the God of Israel, but before Israel ever existed and before Yahweh was known by that name. Exodus chapter 3, verse 12 to 15. So what happens in this encounter between Abraham and Melchizedek in Genesis 14? When Abraham passes by the city of Salem, Melchizedek comes out to meet him, greeting Abraham with a feast and a blessing. And Melchizedek pronounces a blessing on Abraham in the name of El Elyon, the creator-possessor of the skies and land. His blessing is a recognition of Abraham's special relationship with God, recalling God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1-3, that all the families of the earth will find blessing in him. In return, Abraham blesses Melchizedek by paying him a tithe, one-tenth of what he has, Genesis 14, 20. We are then left with the expectation that Melchizedek and the city he rules will experience God's blessing sometime in the future. While there are many gaps in the narrative, Melchizedek is introduced here to show that Abraham encountered Yahweh in and through a royal priest in Jerusalem long before the time of the Levitical priesthood and long before the time of David. And this encounter establishes the category of a royal priesthood in Jerusalem that will be further developed throughout the story of the Bible. Now, Melchizedek and the Messiah and Christ, how does that fit? How does that get us to where we are today? We don't hear about Melchizedek in the Bible again until Psalm 110, after that portion there in Genesis. Psalm 110 is attributed to David. And in this poem, David speaks of someone else who receives the covenant oath of Yahweh, someone whom David calls Lord, a common term when addressing a king. We can conclude that David is speaking of his future seed who will receive the Messianic inheritance based on 2 Samuel 7. In that story, God promises David that his seed, see Genesis 3.15, would come from his line of royal descendants. That David's royal descendant would build a house for the Lord and that God would establish his descendant over his kingdom. 2 Samuel 7.12-13 and 1 Chronicles 17.14. God would be a father to this seed 
So we could conclude that God's son would rule over a kingdom that would last forever. The psalmist depicts this seed as a conquering warrior, exercising dominance over his enemies, Psalm 110.1. And in a surprising twist, the psalmist announces that this king will also be a priest. Not from the expected line of Aaron, but a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And the psalmist claims that his royal priesthood will last forever. Psalm 110 paints a clear portrait of the promised seed, the Messiah who would be a royal priest with both an eternal kingdom and an eternal priesthood. So when we get to the New Testament, the author of Hebrews declares that Jesus is the ultimate king and high priest. Jesus is enthroned above and eternally ruling as king. We see that in the text that we're looking at today. We also see that in Hebrews 1.3, 1.13, and then going back into 2 Samuel 7.16. In Christ's priesthood, Jesus is compared to Israel's priests from the line of Aaron. These priests represented Israel before God and offered sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. However, those same priests were themselves morally flawed and needed to offer sacrifices for their own sins as well as for others. It was an imperfect priesthood and something better was definitely needed. Jesus was that needed priest. The one who superseded the temporary Levitical priesthood with an eternal one. Jesus didn't come from the line of Aaron. He was instead a priest in the order of Melchizedek, the mysterious priest king of ancient Jerusalem. Jesus did not glorify himself in becoming a high priest, but was appointed by God as a priest forever, according to the, to the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so let us go back to my notes. I just wanted to read that. I thought that would be very insightful and helpful to us today. Now, point number three, it, who is Melchizedek. Who is Melchizedek? Now we're looking at uh, verses 1 through 10 of Hebrews chapter 7. Ooh. I'm just going to roll through this, okay? I'm not going to read all that scripture. You can go back at another time. But by the way I roll through this, you'll be able to follow through it in your text if you've got your Bibles open, okay? So the first thing I want us to point out about Melchizedek, outside of what I read from you from this other, um, this other information... He is a higher priest. He's a higher priest. Why is that? He's known as the king of Salem. He's known as the king of Salem, which means the king of peace. Salem comes from the word shalom. So he is the king of peace. We also know he is a priest of the Most High. And Melchizedek, the actual name, is translated to mean king of righteousness. So he is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. He is also curiously eternal in description. He is curiously eternal. It tells us in the passage there. He is without father. He's without mother. He's without genealogy. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life. He is made like the son of God. He remains a priest continually. That's pretty wild when you think about a fella. That just walks up on Abraham. And uh, he's a worthy priest. He's a worthy priest. We see this in verses 4 through 10. Of chapter 7. And, and as we look at this, there's a fourfold superiority of Melchizedek to Abraham, or better yet, the Aaronic line of priests. There's a fourfold superiority. Number one, Abraham gives this king, uh, or gave this king and priest, a tenth of all the spoils. Abraham comes back from, from his battle, and he just straight up gives the king of Salem, Melchizedek, a tenth of all that he has. 
Number two, uh, normally everyone was to give tithes to the priest. And every priest is to receive tithes from the people. Those that were the children of Abraham. You know, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. All those folks were supposed to give tithes to Abraham, to the Aaronic line. Okay, they're supposed to do that. But yet here we see Melchizedek, he received tithes from Abraham. And he blessed Abraham. He blessed Abraham and Abraham tithed to him. So the third thing is, the author goes on to say, the lesser is blessed by the greater, by the better. Giving Melchizedek, if you will, the chair at the head of the table above Abraham. The lesser is better uh, is blessed by the better. So Melchizedek is blessing the lesser in Abraham. So somewhere along the lines, this, this, this priest out of Judah has a higher standing than Abraham. And we know in Israel and through Israelites, Abraham was the man. You know? That's a big deal. And number four, Melchizedek's priesthood is an eternal one, whereas Abraham's was an earthly one, or the Aaronic line was an earthly one. All of those were morally flawed. They would eventually die one day. But Melchizedek was without father, without mother, and was, and was without end. So I want, to, I want you to think about those things. And as we've, we've read through this in this uh, Bible project about the Abraham, Melchizedek to the Messiah line, this is a big deal. So who is our high priest? Look at verses 11 through 13. Initially. Overall, 11 through 25. But initially, verses 11 through 13. Who is our high priest? There's a change in the priesthood. There's a change in the priest, and there's a change in the priesthood. Look there in verse 11. It says, Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. So there is a change. Why is that? It's because when Christ came, Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He is our high priest. So there had to be a new way of offering this sacrifice. And Christ is the new priest because he went in himself. He not only went in as the priest to offer the sacrifice, he went in as the priest as the sacrifice. That's how he went in. And, and, and it, it changed. It changed the whole complete law. In the Levitical laws, they spelled out the requirement of the Old Testament high priest in standing on behalf of God's people for sacrifice and repentance. But Jesus' appointment as high priest spelled out God's new way for substituting for man's sin by his own sacrifice and calling on individual responsibility in repentance. See, in, in the Old Testament, their repentance was based upon the priest and what the priest would do for them. They would offer the sacrifice. They would confess the sins. They would do all that. No more. Jesus is our sacrifice. Now, there is no one. The veil is torn. There's nothing that stands between you and I to communicate with God. As Hebrews says it, uh, later on, I sound like the author of Hebrews, where it says somewhere in another place, um, uh, it, it says us now we can come boldly before the throne of grace. Because the veil has been removed, Christ is our substitute. And he stands, or sits, matter of fact, is our advocate on the right hand of the Father. 
And so we could come to him. There's a change in the priest. And so we could come to him. The priest would be from a different tribe. We talked about that. No longer is he from the Aaronic tribe. He is from the line of, of Judah. He is from the lineage of David. He's from the line of Melchizedek. He is an eternal priest. Look at verses 14 through 19. He's an eternal priest. 14 through 19. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which the tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. He is an eternal priest. Jesus will rule as king, but also speak on behalf of the people. This is what he does. And this is spoken of prophetically in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, where Jacob is blessing his sons. And he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from beneath his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. And we know the tribe of Judah was historically tied to the house of David, the archetypal ruler of God's people. And in Revelation 5.5, Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David. So what is an outcome of this high priestly change? Christ the Messiah has become the reference point by which of all of God's revelation should be understood. Everything should be understood through Jesus Christ. According to Psalm 110 verse 4, God has decided to appoint a priest by means other than those found in the law. And the author of Hebrews goes on to suggest the reason God set aside a regulation that in the past was binding. The old covenant law concerning appointment had its purpose in its time. But ultimately, it was too weak and ineffective to accomplish the greater purposes of God. It was weak in that priests in that system were mortal and limited by death. And the sacrifices were unable to cleanse permanently. So God had to give something, one sacrifice, one atoning sacrifice that would cleanse permanently and that priest be eternal. And that was found in Jesus Christ. That is found in Jesus Christ. And that is the better hope. If you read there in that latter part of those verses in verse 19, that is the better hope. It says, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. It is through Jesus Christ that we're able to draw near to God. He is that better hope. And He is the way that we draw near to Him. He is an unchangeable priest. We see that in verses 20 through 25. Jesus brought a better covenant than just by word of appointment. And because he cannot change his offer of sacrifice, most clearly that of himself, was a perfect, holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, it was a perfect, holy, atoning sacrifice. Holy, atoning sacrifice. Whereas the Old Testament priests served and did their duty until their death, Jesus did his work even in and through his death. Even in and through his death. So Jesus' work was to be the greater sacrifice and he be the greatest sacrifice ever. No priest could have said prior to Christ that his sacrifice was himself. No priest could have ever said prior to Christ 
that his sacrifice was himself. But after Christ, the Bible tells us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing unto the Lord. This is where we get this understanding that we as believers, we are the priesthood of believers. Because now we can come before the Lord, just like the priest in the Old Testament. It's the priesthood of the believers. We can come before Him. But we have a great high priest, who is Jesus Christ alone. <clears throat> he is the perfect priest. Look at verses 26 through 28. And we'll conclude here. He is the perfect priest. And I'll read all this passage of Scripture. I know I've been flying through it. Um, but if I had not been, we'd been here a lot longer. For such a high priest was fitting for us. How was he fitting? He was holy. He is holy. He is harmless. He is undefiled. He is separate from sinners. He has become higher than the heavens. He is the one who, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices. First for his own sin and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. We need a perfect priest. We need a perfect priest. And there is no more, there is no perfect priest except that of Christ. He is holy. He is set apart. He sits above anything else. He is harmless. His goal is not to harm you, but for good for you. It is to bring you to the Father, not to cast you farther from Him. I want to tell you this. The Scripture says that Jesus Christ came to save, not to condemn. It is our own sin that condemns us to hell, not He. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. It is our own sin that condemns us. He is harmless. He is undefiled. There is no sin about him. There is no tarnish, no blemish on him, nor his character, nor his life. You can't find it. He is undefiled. He is separate from sinners in that he had no sin. Although he was close to us, he was near to us, yet he was separate because he was holy. He became higher than the heavens, though becoming a man, living without sin, dying as our sacrifice, rising from the grave. He became higher than the heavens. The Bible tells us that the Father made this earth his footstool. And for the earth to be his footstool, you got to be higher than the heavens. And that's where Christ rules and reigns. He died once for all, and not for his own sins, but for your sins and for my sins. He didn't have a single sin that put him on that cross. He had a single desire and a single obedience that put him on that cross. And that was to do the will of the Father. And that's what our lives should be today. We should have one desire, one faithfulness, one obedience. And that is to do the will of the Father at any expense that he calls us to. At any expense. And he died, like I said, he died once for all. And not for his sins. In the Old Testament priests, they were weak and sin-filled. But Christ was strong and sinless. He is the one to turn to. He is our perfect priest. I hope today, I know we've covered a lot of ground. But in this, I want you to understand this. The priests of the Old Testament, the Aaronic line, weak. Although they did their job, they did what God called them to. They were as faithful as mankind, many of them as faithful as they could be to the calling to which God called them to. They were faithful to it. But you know what? It was weak. It was, it was flawed. 
because it was in man. Not because it was God's plan, but because it was in man. God's plan is not flawed, but man is. So God had a greater plan, and he sent his son, Jesus Christ. And although Melchizedek is an interesting character, I want to tell you this, Melchizedek don't save you. Melchizedek, although he was a king, he's not the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Although Melchizedek was a priest, he's not our great high priest. He doesn't stand before the Father today, calling out our name, telling the Lord our needs and our prayers. That's not what he does. Jesus does that. I want to tell you today, there's nobody that can save you but Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through him. He's our king and great high priest. As we first looked at this book, we saw how he was the greater prophet. Now we're looking at how he's the greater high priest, and we're transitioning to show you how he is the greatest king that you'll ever have to rule and reign and have lordship over your life. You need to give it to him. You need to give him your life today. He's a good and gracious king, as the wonderful praise song tells us. He's a good and gracious king. I hope you know him. I hope you know him. I know him. He's changed my life. He's blessed my heart. He's given me things that, good and bad, he's given to me to grow me to be more like him, and I'm grateful for every one of them. I pray today that you know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior.